Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. But I love the fact that I get to come to this church regularly. I get to see how this church is developing uh, and growing. Every time I come, there's a new site, which is just really exciting. I'm challenged by you guys. Um, you say you don't talk about money here a lot. You talk about money here a lot. You really do as a church, but it's always about giving away money, and I just am inspired by that. I, I'm inspired by your generosity as a church, and um, I always leave feeling encouraged. So even if you have a rubbish day, I'm excited about having a great day. Uh, I'm here morning and evening, um, and I'm excited about tonight, which is not to say you're going to get a dud this morning, but I'm doing a different talk at both. Uh, come back. I feel like we're going to have a great evening, and I'm trusting we're going to have a great morning as well. And I'm going to leap straight into our passage for today. I've got loads I want to say about it. Uh, it's Luke chapter 8. And this is an amazing uh, section of Luke's story. Luke was one of the followers of Jesus who wrote one of four accounts that we know as the Gospels, uh, which are the accounts of Jesus' life. And in Luke 8, he weaves together all these different stories. I wish I had time to show you how they all fit together. But we're going to leap into two stories in particular, starting at verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, the synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she'd been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Just an amazing climax of that story. And then look what happens next. While Jesus was still speaking, Someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teaching anymore. From this incredible high, just crushed to the absolute lows. But Jesus says to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. There is so much going on in these two stories. I wish I had two hours to talk them through with you. I bet you're glad that I don't. But uh, I'm just going to leap straight in. And I want to look at three things, three people in this story. Jesus, Jairus, and the woman who I'm tempted to call like Jane or something, just so we have three Js. But uh, I, I won't do that. We're going to look at the woman, uh, the ruler, Jairus, and the healer, Jesus. And there is so much that we don't know about this woman. 
We don't even know her name, which I think is telling. Actually, we know Jairus' name, we know Jesus' name, we know various names, but we don't know this woman's name. But what we do know about her situation is that it is dire. For 12 years, she has been incredibly unwell. She's been bleeding. We don't know the cause of it. We don't know exactly how it affected her. It clearly was not entirely debilitating because she was able to move. She was able to get about. But actually, it would have affected every area of her life for 12 years. And no one could do anything about it. It says that she had spent all her money on doctors, but none of them could heal her. Actually, that phrase is not in all the ancient manuscripts, which is why I put it in brackets on the screen. But my personal theory is that given Luke was a doctor, this was his way of just sort of sticking it to his old colleagues and going, yeah, they're pretty rubbish. I used to work with them, useless guys. And now that's recorded in scripture. <laughs> and I, I can't help but wonder, I can't prove this, but I wonder if it's not in every manuscript because they tipex some of it out. <laughs> but, you know, just my little theory. <laughs> What profound gems you're getting this morning. So, but the point is, like, no one could change her situation. And for 12 years, her situation was bleak. There was no NHS. There was no health insurance. Um, I assume that she didn't have a husband or a family. They're not mentioned, at least. And so she probably didn't have people to support her. The only people who could possibly do something were the doctors, and they couldn't. And yet they still happily took her money. And so she has a health problem. She has a financial problem. But also it affected her spiritually and socially as well. In the Old Testament law, in the book of Leviticus, in particular chapter, chapter 15, which I'm sure is one of your favorites, uh, it says actually that someone who has been experiencing bleeding beyond her normal monthly uh, period actually is considered unclean for the whole time that she is bleeding. And everything that she touches will be considered ceremonially unclean. Her clothes, her bed, her chair, everything. And anyone who touches her would be considered unclean, them and their clothes. So this is the situation that this woman has been in for, for 12 years of her life. And in Jewish literature outside the Bible, the rabbis tried to grapple with some of the practicalities of this. Like, how do you know when it started and stopped? Like, can you touch the same object if you don't touch each other's hands? Like, if one person holds a cup, passes it to the other, the other person holds the other side of the cup, but their hands don't touch, is impurity transferred? Like, it's a bit over the top, but the point is they took this seriously, because they were terrified about the idea of uncleanliness, impurity being passed between one person to the other. Some communities literally had a hut that people would live in through the, the, the time of their impurity because they didn't want anyone else to be affected or infected by this because it would affect every area, every area of your life. If you were considered unclean, people couldn't touch you. You couldn't touch them. You couldn't go out in society. You couldn't go to the temple to worship. Now, it's important to notice that there is a difference between ritual impurity and moral impurity. So when people saw this woman as being impure, they weren't saying that she was sinful or that she'd done anything wrong. But they were saying that she was a threat to them and they needed to keep her at a distance. And this woman had been in this situation for 12 years of her life with people keeping her at arm's length, unable to worship, unable to interact with other people. I can't imagine what that would be like. I can imagine like the tiniest fragment, and probably so can you. Because this last year and a half, we have been locked down uh, in a way that has given us just a tiny glimpse, a fragment of a glimpse, as suddenly things that we took for granted were stripped away from us, and we lost some of the, uh, the normal connections that we might otherwise have had. Now, we've lived with the benefit of healthcare and vaccines and Zoom and <laughs> ways of connecting with others in a way that this woman hadn't. But if you're anything like me, the period of lockdown and the restrictions and the isolation, it taught me something about the importance of physical presence and physical contact in maybe a way that I hadn't appreciated before. 
I remember the first time I saw my mum once the restrictions had been lifted. She hugged me so hard I thought she was never going to let go. And I love my mum, but I'm also an introvert. It was slightly terrifying. <laughs> but it told me that there is something about being deprived of normal, meaningful contact that does something to you at a deep level. And this woman had experienced that for 12 years of her life. And Luke wants to hammer home that point. So he points out at the beginning of the passage that Jairus' daughter was how old? 12 years old. So for the whole of the life of this child, as she was being held by her parents, fed, cuddled, put to bed, looked after in every area of her life, for the whole of her life, this lady, her life had been hell. She'd had none of that. None of the connection, none of the love, none of the affection, none of the touch, none of the warmth of being in someone else's presence. Instead, she had to live with the shame, the emotional stigma of being treated as someone to be kept at arm's length. She didn't just have a sickness problem, she had an everything problem. Every area of her life had been affected by this. It had physical, financial, social and spiritual consequences, emotional consequences. For 12 years of her life, she had lived in an extreme lockdown and then along comes Jesus. And this woman is so convinced that he can change what no one else could that she risks everything to be near to him. She pushes through the crowd, knowing that in so doing, she is touching people and making them impure. Knowing that the synagogue leader, whose job it was to make sure that people remained pure, was there watching. There was no way she was going to get away with this. But she was willing to risk everything just to touch Jesus. Not even to be prayed for by him, but just believing that if she could touch just the corner of his robe, tiny bit of his clothing, that would be enough. That is incredible faith. And you've got to wonder, where does she get that idea from? And whilst the text doesn't tell us explicitly, I want to suggest that it came from two places. Because faith is fueled by two things, the works of God and the word of God. It's true right through scripture, it's true in our lives today. Faith is fueled by the works of God and the word of God. That is, I think that this lady, one of the things that motivated her was hearing or seeing uh, the stories of Jesus changing other people's lives. Stories were just going around. People were gathering as crowds because they heard the stories of the works of God. The way that everywhere Jesus went, he healed people. And I reckon this lady had heard these stories of the works of God and thought, well, if he can do that for others, he might be able to do it for me. Because that's the power of testimony. That's why we just sang that song right now. You have done great things, and I know you will do it again. When we celebrate the works of God, it raises faith within us. Actually, the Hebrew word, the root of the Hebrew word for testimony, ud, it means to repeat, to return, to do again. The power of testimony is that as we hear about the works of God in people's lives, it raises faith that maybe he could repeat that for me. Maybe he could do that in my life. And I reckon that was what spurred this woman on. But actually, in all the other stories of Jesus healing people, typically he prayed for them. He touched them. He took the initiative. There aren't very many stories of people just reaching out and touching Jesus' clothes and being healed by that. So where did she get that idea? I think that might have come from the word of God. Because for 12 years, this lady had been in lockdown and she didn't have a Bible in the same sort of form we do. She couldn't have done like a Bible in one year with Nicky Gumbel. He's he's old, but he's not that old. But over years, she would have internalized scripture and had it gathered up in her heart and she would remember it and reflect on it. And I wonder if one of the verses she reflected on was Malachi 4.2, which prophesies and looks forward to and longs for the day when the Messiah, the chosen one, would come and put the world to rights. And in that verse, it says this. 
The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Think about that picture for a moment. The sun does not have wings. <laughs> okay, it has rays. And actually, your Bible may translate it as rays. But the Hebrew word is explicitly wings. It's kanaf. And it appears about 85 times in the Old Testament, almost always literally referring to the wings of a bird or an angel. But when it's used metaphorically, it is used for the corner of a robe. So in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 12, the Israelites were told to sew tassels onto the wings or the corners of their robe. So maybe, just maybe, this lady had been reflecting on that, hearing of the works of God, thinking about the word of God, and she saw Jesus go by and she thinks to herself, if he truly is the son of righteousness, the one that all the world has been waiting for, with healing in his wings, then even if I can't talk to him, even if he won't give me the time of day, if I could just touch the, the, the wing, the edge of his cloak, maybe that would be enough. And motivated by the works of God and the word of God, she reaches out in faith and she is healed. We're told she came up behind Jesus, touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? <laughs> and everyone denies it, except Peter, who's like, Jesus, literally everyone is touching you. <laughs> what are you talking about? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Like, there's a difference between touching and touching. It's not just who brushed against me, just passed by and happened to bump into me, or clamoured for just, just, just to touch me, to be near a celebrity or something. Someone touched me in a particular way, with faith. And because this woman touched Jesus in faith, he felt the power go out of him. I mean, it seems like Jesus didn't even have a choice in the matter. He healed this woman, not on the basis of his will, it would appear. Because there's something about the power of faith that is able to attract the heart and power of God. I don't want to push this too far because some people, when they talk about faith, it gets a bit weird and a bit unhelpful. And if I had time, I would love to talk more about that just to keep it really clear. But there is something about faith that has the power to attract the heart and power of God. And we see it here. Jesus says, your faith healed you. I think of it like this. Um, if you've got a car, you want to start the car. How do you start the car? What is it that starts the car? Is it the key or is it the ignition and the engine? It's both. If you just have a key, that doesn't start the car on its own. But also, just having an engine in the car doesn't mean the car gets going. That you have to actually connect the key with the ignition to start the engine. And I think that's how faith and the power of God work. Faith is the key. The ignition and the engine is the power of God. And when we connect our faith with the power of God, that's what starts his work in our life. And this woman reaches out with the little faith she has, and that is enough. Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And what I love about this moment is that Jesus stops and he interacts with this lady. He doesn't just go, I felt power, go, where did that go? Oh, you're healed. Okay, I got somewhere to be. He doesn't do that. He stops and he draws her out of the crowd. Like her faith drew the power out of him. He draws her out of the crowd. He spends time with her. Think about where Jesus is going at this moment. There is a girl in a life-threatening situation. Jesus could easily have said, okay, I acknowledge something's happened, but i got to move on. i got somewhere more important to be. He doesn't do that. He turns aside for this lady. Others might have considered her a nuisance. Jairus might have considered her to be threatening his situation. But Jesus has time for her. And he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Actually, the word is sozo. It means salvation. Saved you. Every part of you, body, mind, and spirit. 
Every bit of her is changed by this encounter with Jesus. And he says, daughter, such a tender word. I wonder when the last time was that someone had called her daughter. And remember who's watching on at this point. It's Jairus, whose whose literal daughter is at the door of death. Imagine how heartbroken he is, how much he loves his daughter. And when Jesus deliberately chooses that word, I think he is saying to this lady, the love that Jairus has for his daughter is the same depth of emotion and deep love that the father has for you. Daughter who's been excluded for 12 years, who hasn't been able to worship at the temple for 12 years, who hasn't experienced the touch and love of another person for 12 years. Daughter, daughter of the living God, your faith has healed you. And in that moment, everything changed about this lady's situation. I don't know who needs to hear this today, but Jesus would turn aside for you. There is nothing else that is more important to him than interacting with you today. Your needs are not a nuisance to him. There's no one else in this room who is more worthy of his presence and time than you. Jesus would not consider you an impediment to what he really wants to do, going and talking to someone else. There's no one else who deserves to hear daughter or son more than you today. He loves it when we reach out to him in faith. And wherever you are at today, I don't know everyone in this room. I don't know your background. I don't know what is going on in your life. Wherever you are at today, Jesus would slow down and turn aside for you if you reach out to him in faith. It may be that some of you wouldn't even call yourself a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're trying to explore this whole God thing and work it out. Today, you can know that you are a child of the living God. And you can experience salvation. And it's a relationship with God and a new identity that starts now and extends into eternity. You can know that by reaching out to him in faith. It may be that you're here today and you just feel broken. Maybe you feel isolated or in pain. Maybe you've been carrying things for so long, like this woman, that it feels like it's become just something of your identity and you think that'll never change. Maybe people have prayed for you over and over and over and it just nothing's changed. And you can get to the point where you think it'll never change. That's a lie. Jesus can change any situation. And my encouragement is, in a bit, we're going to have an opportunity to pray. It may be that you're actually here with a physical ailment today. We would love to pray for you. Whatever is going on in your life, Jesus is still in the business of healing. And at the end, we're going to worship, we're going to pray, and we'll have an opportunity to pray for you. But let's continue through the story. Because it may be that some of you don't identify with this woman at all, but you might identify a bit more with Jairus. So remember, the whole while this is going on, there's this other guy standing at the side watching. And Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue, the local place of Jewish worship. He would have been known and respected within the community. Uh, He had a title. People had certain expectations of him. It seems that he had people working in his house, maybe servants who, who actually come as the messengers to him. But what I love about Jairus is that despite his social standing, he doesn't use any of that to his own advantage. He doesn't say when this woman is distracting Jesus, hang on, hang on. Don't you know who I am? He doesn't pull rank. He doesn't say, look, I was here first, or this woman is not as, 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 as worthy as my daughter. He doesn't say to Jesus, don't you know this woman is impure? I'm pure. Like, don't go near her, the law says. Like, he doesn't pull rank in any way. Because in the face of suffering, titles don't mean anything. God isn't impressed by that stuff. 
Like religious leaders don't get some kind of preferential track to Jesus. Like Jesus doesn't listen to me more than he listens to you. In the face of suffering and need, the only thing that matters is putting your faith in the one who can heal. And that's exactly what Jairus does. He does the very same thing as the woman. He falls down at the feet of Jesus, recognizing his need. Jairus shows incredible faith. You know, he presumably had servants in his house. And yet when his daughter is sick, he doesn't send the servants. He goes himself. Imagine how painful that would be to leave your daughter to go and find Jesus. But that's faith. He does that because he recognizes he has a need and he has to interact with Jesus. And as the story unfolds, you can imagine this emotional roller coaster that he goes on. As he first of all goes to Jesus thinking, I don't know how this is going to play out. And then Jesus says, I'll come to your house. And he thinks, yes, he's going to do it. And then they're on the way and he's getting excited the whole way. And then this interaction with the woman happens and it And he would have just been confused, like, come on, Jesus, I'm I'm waiting for you. My daughter's waiting for you. Come on, are you still going to do it? And then they're about to set off again, and then the unthinkable happens. And while Jesus is still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus and says, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And that emotional roller coaster must have been heartbreaking for him. But isn't that how faith often feels? Like, for me, it is. (laughs) There are times where I feel like full of faith and I set out thinking God is going to do something amazing here and then it feels slower than I might have hoped for. (laughs) And then there are times where I'm praying and it seems like everyone else gets their miracle (laughs) and I don't. You're like, God, what is going on here? (laughs) And then times where it actually seems to get worse rather than better. And in those moments, if you're anything like me, what can easily happen is you feel tempted to give up. Literally, like messengers come and say, don't bother anymore. And I found through many years of many difficulties that I, in those moments, am tempted to believe any number of lies that stop me following Jesus. It's so easy in those moments to believe things about God. Maybe he wasn't really willing to do anything there. Maybe he didn't actually want to come and heal my daughter. Maybe he wasn't able to. I mean, Jesus said the power went out of me. Does that mean there was no power left for my daughter? It's easy to believe lies about God. It's easy to believe lies about others. It's that woman's fault. She stopped me getting the answer to my miracle. Actually, she touched Jesus. She would have made him impure. It's her fault. It's easy to believe lies about yourself. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe I didn't have as much faith as this woman. I mean, she seemed to do this bold act. I only asked if I had touched the robe, maybe maybe I don't have enough faith. Maybe it's my fault. (laughs) And in those moments, whatever the messengers are that come and say to you, don't bother Jesus anymore. We have to resist them. Because Jesus, he ignored the messengers. He ignored everyone else and he looked directly into the eyes of Jairus and he said this, don't be afraid, just believe and she, your daughter, will be healed. It's that same word, sozo, she'll be saved, rescued. And like this woman, I reckon he drew faith from two things, the works of God and the word of God. In this moment, his absolute low, I reckon he probably looked at this woman whose life had been completely changed and somehow would have thought, well, you know, if Jesus could do a miracle for her, maybe he can do that for me. And even if his faith felt fragile, I reckon that work of God would have fueled his faith. But he also drew comfort and faith from the word of God. Literally, Jesus said, believe, just believe. It's in the continuous tense. It's not start believing. It's continue the believing you've already been doing. As in, don't give up now. You've started well. All I'm asking you to do is put one foot in front of the other and keep walking to your house. And I love the fact that faith for Jairus looked different than faith for the woman. 
He didn't drop to his knees and think, well, this worked for her, maybe it'll work for me, I'll touch the corner of his robe. And neither did Jesus ask him to, because faith looks different for each of us. It's not about following a formula. It's about doing what Jesus asks us to do. And for some of us, sometimes there are times where God asks us to do things that feel radical, feel risky, feel like pushing through that crowd. And sometimes all that faith looks like is just saying, I'm just going to hang on. I'm just going to not give up. I'm going to keep doing the things that I just feel normal and unsexy, but I know Jesus asked me to do them. I'm just going to keep trusting and keep praying, keep coming to church, keep reading my Bible, even though it feels like it's not working. Just keep believing. It may be that today you're in that sort of situation, feeling tempted to give up. And maybe Jesus' word to you is the same word to Jairus. Keep trusting, keep walking, because ultimately he is the healer. And when Jesus arrives at the house and the people there are mourning and Jesus says, she's only sleeping, I'm here to wake her and they laugh at him. <laughs> this is not the same group who has travelled. This is not the group that have just seen the works of God healing this woman. I reckon if they'd seen that, they might not have laughed. <laughs> but Jesus isn't put off by their scepticism. Instead, he takes her hand and he raises her up. Her spirit returned and at once she stood up. Nothing's too hard for Jesus. Not a woman who's been unwell for 12 years and not even a dead girl. Nothing is too hard for him. And what I love about this is the radical nature of what Jesus does. The two things in this story that should have made Jesus impure, should have disqualified him from being able to perform this miracle. According to the Old Testament law, being touched by a woman who was ceremonially impure should have made Jesus impure. Touching the hand of a corpse should have made Jesus impure. And yet in both situations, what gets changed is not pure and perfect Jesus, but impure and broken people. Because there is something about Jesus that is so powerful that impurity has to bow the knee to his presence. This is a stupid illustration, but go with me on this. Uh, Do you remember about 18 months ago where our government decided to give us a lesson in how to wash our hands? (laughs) It was like one of the most patronising odd moments as you're sitting there watching the TV and Boris Johnson is sitting behind this desk saying, and uh, do it for 20 seconds whilst singing Happy Birthday twice. (laughs) And you're like, what is going on? This is so bizarre and patronising. Happy Birthday. I mean, well, yeah, I won't make any comments on him, but there you go. An odd situation, right? Our school uh, sent home a video to watch with my daughter in a little experiment. You may have seen this. And the experiment was this. You get a bowl of water and you grate pepper over the surface of the water. People seen this? Yeah. Okay. And so the pepper represents germs. And you get the daughter to, or whoever, (laughs) whoever has a finger, to put the finger into the water. And you take it out. And of course, the pepper is on your finger. And the point is, the pepper represents the germs. And if you touch the germs, you get covered in germs, right? And so then what you do is you wash the pepper off the finger. And you put some antibacterial hand wash on the finger or soap. And then you put the finger in. And this is what happens. Like the pepper just shoots away to the side of the bowl. And it's actually like weirdly dramatic. It kind of just, and you're all going to try it when you get home today and have a wonderful time, I'm sure. Like, <laughs> but it's actually strangely this odd visual thing. Like the finger goes in and it's just repelled away to the side of the bowl. In a strange kind of way, I think that's actually a picture for how Jesus steps into this world. You see, when Jesus comes into this world and interacts with impurity, our expectation is that he would become tainted by the people he interacts with. That's not what happens. They become whole. We expect that Jesus, when he interacts with broken or impure people, he would get made impure. The opposite happens. Sickness and death has to flee. 
I've heard it said so many times, and you probably have as well, that God is so holy, so pure, so perfect, that he cannot stand to be in the presence of impurity. It's totally the wrong way around. God is so holy, so pure, so perfect, that impurity cannot stand to be in his presence. When he steps into this world, he is so holy, so pure, so perfect, that he cannot become tainted. Rather, sin, sickness, and death is repelled away from his presence. Jesus spent all his life seeking out the broken, and he didn't get made broken by them. They got made whole by him. I was reading this in Ezekiel the other week. I'd never seen it before, and it just blew me away. There's this moment where Ezekiel is talking about the priests who had the privilege of going into the presence of God, the holiest place, in a way that no one else did. And because God's presence in the temple was so holy, so pure, they had to like purify themselves and wear special clothes when they went in. And Ezekiel says this, when the priests go into the outer court, so coming out of the temple to where the people are, they're to take off the clothes they've been ministering in and leave them in the sacred rooms and put on other clothes. And I hear that and I think, of course. Why? Because these robes, they're so holy, so pure. They don't want impure people to touch them and make the holy robes unholy. That's not what Ezekiel says. He says when they've been in the holy place, they take off their clothes. Why? So that the people are not made holy through contact with their garments. When you touch the robe of a priest who has ministered in the holiest place, you get made holy simply by touching their clothes, not the other way around. If that is true of a priest who has his own flaws, his own impurity, and spends half an hour in the presence of God, how much more is that true of our great high priest who has no sin, no sickness, no impurity of his own, and has spent forever worshipping in the presence of the Almighty God? No wonder that when Jesus steps into this world, simply touching his clothes makes you holy. And everything that people expected, oh, we might make him impure, it works the other way around. When Jesus steps in, sin, sickness, death, impurity, it has to flee. It has to bow the knee to the perfect high priest. And we see this all the way through Jesus' life. The message of the gospel, the thing he came to do, it says in Acts, he came to destroy the works of the evil one. Every time he interacted with someone and said, I forgive you, go in peace, go in hope, let your life be changed. Every time he healed someone, every time he changed someone's situation, it's like he put the finger of God into the world. The kingdom of God came, sin, sickness and death had to flee. We see it ultimately at the cross. Where in that moment, Jesus went through a divine exchange. He took into himself our impurity, ritual and moral every bit of brokenness in this world and everything that we have actively done to contribute to that. He took it into himself. He took our death and gave us his life. He died on our behalf. He went into the grave and three days later, the finger of God reached in and boom, death had to flee. And the way the story of the Bible ends is that Jesus is coming back to make a new creation where there will be no trace of that ground black pepper. (laughs) No trace of sin, sickness, death forever. It will be banished. And for anyone who puts their trust in Jesus, you can spend eternity with him in that new creation. I don't know where you are at with God, but whether you would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus or whether you followed him for years, you can get a taste of that day now because Jesus is just as present now just as able to heal, just as able to turn around lives as he was there in Luke 8. And so what I'd love to do is just give us an opportunity to worship and I'd love to pray for us. And maybe Joanne and Ben would like to come back up. But let me just tell you one story before we pray and worship. 
I, uh, I was preaching at a church in East London a couple of years ago. And before the service, uh, I was praying with the pray- prayer team. We were in this little room sort of under the, the building and um, about eight of us in the room. And while we were praying, I had this sense that there was someone there who had pain in their left knee and that God wanted to heal their left knee that day. And so I, I was like, eight people in the room. I don't, know, I don't know, what are the chances of this? It's really specific, left knee. So I said, uh, is there any... And actually, as I was saying it, I saw this guy and I thought, I think it's him. I mean, not because he had like a massive cast on his left knee. <laughs> Just, I felt like God had prompted me. It was this guy, David. So I said, is there someone who has a pain in the left... Is it you, David? And the guy went, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and so he said, let's pray for David. And I felt excited, like God's going to heal this guy. So everyone gathered round and was praying for David. And I was like, right, stand up and test it. And he stood up and he's like, oh my word, that hurts. <laughs> I was like, oh, what? what? <laughs> like, I thought you were going to be healed. And, and he wasn't. I was so annoyed. <laughs> and we got to the end of the prayer meeting. We had to go upstairs for the service. And I was preaching. So we, we went upstairs. And as I was going up the stairs, I was going through all those doubts. Like, what was, why did that not happen? Like, I thought you told me you were going to do that, God. Did you not want to? Were you not able to? Was it something to do with me? Like, did I not have enough faith? Was it him? Was it a secret sin in his life? Like, what? <laughs> All these questions. And I thought, I've just got to, ban- I've got to go and preach. So I need to banish these thoughts and just focus. And so I decided to trust Jesus and leave it with him. And we'll talk about it later. So anyway, I preached a sermon. Outstanding. Five stars. But um, <laughs> Four and a half. And um, I preached. End of the service. Someone came up to me. Not David. <laughs> this lady called Cindy came up and she had been there at the prayer meeting. She said, can I just tell you what happened? I said, yeah, sure. I actually got her to write it down. These are her own words. She said, I'd strained my knee from sports and was having pain in the outer left knee for a couple of months. It would hurt whenever I walked or exerted weight on it. In pre-service prayer, Liam asked if anyone had pain in the left knee. David said yes, so we prayed for David. But I placed my hands on my knee... <laughs> And prayed for us both. And as I prayed, I knew in my heart, without having to test it, that my knee was healed. And of course, as we ended the prayer session and got up to leave, the pain was no more. (laughs) I love that. No one prayed for Cindy. We were praying for David. She stole the prayers intended for David. (laughs) And there was me just filled with disappointment. Like, God, what are you doing in this? And she got healed. Her faith connected with the power of God I mean, I don't think God was surprised. Like, oi, how dare you? Like, but somehow her faith connected with his power and she was healed without anyone needing to pray for her. And if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, but what about David? That's really unfair. Firstly, that's not how it works. And secondly, as Cindy is telling me this, who comes running up the aisle? It's David. Who said, I went up those stairs and I got into the building feeling so disappointed and I felt Jesus simply say, lay the disappointment aside, worship me. And he said, as I worshipped, I felt this tingling in my knee. And as I tested it, I realised I'd completely healed. I tell you that story for two reasons. One, maybe three reasons. One, is fun. <laughs> two, it illustrates what's going on in this passage. Like, faith looks different for different people. For Cindy, it looks like reaching out and grabbing something without others praying, and her faith saved her. For David, it looked more like actually doing the gyrus thing, of just like, okay, I'm going to ignore the doubts, press on, just do the things I'm meant to do, worship, leave it with God, and he got his healing. The third reason I tell you that is because faith is fueled by the words of God and the works of God. And we have seen that this happened in Luke 8, right the way through the Gospels, and I want you to know it happens today as well. And as we reflect on the word of God and the works, the testimony of God, what he's done in people's lives, it can raise faith that maybe he can do it for us. And so whatever you are going through right now, I want you to know that Jesus would turn aside for you, that he is powerful and able to heal. And we'd love to pray for you.